We're going to continue our study of Luke's gospel today. Chapter 7 is where we're going to be. And while you're turning there, I just want to remind you of a couple of things that are taking place this week. Kirk mentioned it, uh, but we have our carpet and everything going in. Thanks for being patient with that. Uh, After Sunday school classes, life group classes led up today, we'll have some volunteers that we'll need to stack those chairs. We'll move them out again, but if you could stack the chairs in the first floor in the main building, that would certainly help us. Secondly, this week we have two of our student groups taking off. Uh, Camp 5-6 takes place and then Student Leadership University again. And I want to pray for Camp 5-6 specifically right now that there'll be some young people that will come to know the Savior this week. We've got Lighthouse here. Let's pray for this upcoming week for them because all this is being done not only so that people have a good time, but we want them to know Jesus, amen? Isn't that the purpose of what we're doing? So why don't we pray right now that God would show up in a great way and the Holy Spirit would draw people to salvation and that we'd see people saved this week at Lighthouse and we'd see people saved at Camp 5-6. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity. And we thank you for all the volunteers that are going to be at Lighthouse this week, ministering all the volunteers that will be at Camp 5-6 and Student Leadership University. Father, we pray that you would move amongst our young people. We pray that you would save some of them, Lord. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be uninhibited by us quenching the spirit or, or the enemy's attacks, Lord, but that the Holy Spirit's power would be displayed and that you would draw people to salvation. Father, we thank you for these opportunities. We recognize them as divine moments, and we're so excited to see what's going to happen on the other side. Father, we believe that lives are going to be changed, and we'll give you the honor and glory because it's your work, and we just get to be part of it. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, ends with the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of the ending piece of that. And, and it changes a little bit of direction as Luke begins to write about what's happening in Jesus' life as he's now teaching and traveling. And that's kind of where we pick up today. We're going to read a story about a man who's just identified as a centurion. And we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 7. Join with me. When he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening... He entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he's worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and he built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them and when he was not far from the house, The centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is why I didn't even consider you worthy to come, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus heard this And was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Capernaum is this 
good-sized uh, town kind of out in the boonies that borders the Sea of Galilee. And you may remember that in our study of Luke, we've already been to Capernaum once because it's where Jesus performed a miracle by healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law. This was a, an area for Jesus's life that kind of became a, a home away from home. He was in and out of Capernaum a lot. And, and we, we understand a little bit that's unusual about this healing that takes place because this is a Gentile man who's known as a centurion. Now, a centurion is a military title, meaning that he had 100 soldiers underneath him. And you have to remember something. He's part of an occupying army in Israel. Rome has occupied them. And, and the fact that this man is identified as a centurion might be the modern equivalent of, if we were just going to throw a military term around, you'd, you'd say like, the colonel asked you to do this, or the colonel asked that you would come and, and, and do this for his servant. That's what's going on. Now, we need to remember as well that Jews and Gentiles really don't have any association with one another at all. Even though the Jews are occupied by the Romans, they despise them and they look down on them and they don't want to be around them at all because they live unclean, the Romans do. And so the Jews stay away from them. And, and something is different about this centurion though because... He has the favor of the Jewish elders. Did you notice that? He, he's done some things that they find worthy to request Jesus' presence. It, it said in the text that, that, that he had, he had uh, been a friend of Israel, he loved the country, that he built a synagogue, and it's on this basis that he asked the Jewish elders, and they comply, hey, would you please go and get Jesus and bring him here because the servant that he really valued is dying. Even more interesting, I think, is that it says this in the scripture. He's worthy for you to grant this because he loves the nation, built this a synagogue. That's unusual. It would be unusual to have the favor of a Roman do this. Now, we don't know if he used his manpower, those hundred people, to build that synagogue or, or just his influence to get it passed. We, we don't know that. But something about this man was different. If you're going to heal anybody, Jesus, this is the guy. We, we really like this guy. He's been really kind to us. Could you come? So Jesus goes with them. And it's amazing what happens. Somebody runs back to the house. And they tell the centurion, the master's coming. Jesus is coming. We got him. He's going to come. And the centurion says something amazing in verse 6. Look at it. Jesus went with them, but he's not far from the house and the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself because I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. This is why I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed for I too am a man placed under authority. Having soldiers under my command, I say to this one, go and he goes, to another come and he comes, to my servant do this and he does it. Now, the centurion is demonstrating a pretty remarkable or you might even say incredible knowledge about how authority works in the spiritual realm. He indicates his humility first. Did you notice that? He says, look, I'm not worthy. I really am. I, I'm asking you to do this, but I'm not worthy for you to even come. And, and, and he, he's asking Jesus to do something that would have been incredible. And he knows that a Jew can't even come into his house because the Jew would consider himself unclean. He, he can't even visit in his house. And so he says, I understand what's going on. I'm asking you to do something outside of the bounds of what's accepted 
And so let's grasp of the authority that he has. He says, if you'll just say that the servant could be healed, he will be healed. Now, I want you to think about that because if Jesus can heal you by touching it or touching you, he can speak a word over you and be healed. If, if Jesus could place mud over your eyes and, and you could regain your sight, he could speak a word over you. Do you remember the story of the lady who'd been dealing with the issue of blood? I was just reading about this in, in my devotional this past week and it, it talked about how the crowd's pressing in all around Jesus and this lady just kind of reaches in and just touched his garment. I mean, just, if I could only touch the hem of his garment, she says, and she touched him and immediately her issue was over. Do you remember what Jesus, he stops and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, I mean, look around, man. You can't tell who touched you. There's people all over you. It's a, it's a crowd of people. And he says, no, the power went out of him. He knew the power had gone out of him. And she comes forward and he says, your faith may, if you could touch his garment, can he speak a word over you? I mean, you understand what's, what's harder to do. This man grasped something that was incredible. It could be is some have speculated that this man recognized something about Jesus's authority that meant that Jesus even had authority over diseases. Think about that. Could it be that Jesus has the authority over diseases as our healer to be able to speak them away and say, you can't afflict this person anymore, be gone. You must leave. You must restore this person. You know, the disciples learned about Jesus' authority over the wind and the waves in a hard way, didn't they? He sent them into a storm. What happened? While he was sleeping, the storm was raging. They woke him up. And with one word, peace. Be still. Shh. And the storm stops. Do you remember what the disciple says? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? I love what the Jesus Storybook Bible says about that passage. If, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, you're not too old for it, I promise you. You ought to get it. Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote it. And she says about that passage, the wind and the waves obeyed his voice because it was a familiar voice because he had created them. They knew his voice. He had authority over all these things. He, he could speak these things and they would happen that way. He's someone with authority. And understanding that Jesus has authority over all things changes everything. This Gentile, this, this Roman soldier understood about Jesus' authority before the disciples did, before we do. And he even gets it before Jesus issues the Great Commission. Do you remember how the Great Commission starts? Matthew 28 and 18. It says, Jesus came near to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means there's nothing held back from him. It's all his. That means that no one can take away what's been given. Nobody can change it in heaven. Nobody can change it in earth. It's his. That means he has the authority over the smallest details of your life. It means he has the authority over the greatest of world events. He has authority. Now, maybe you've struggled with this truth. I know I have because it's hard to imagine that something might be in my life that I don't like. Jesus has authority over that even still. Maybe it's hard for you to believe that that shut door in your life is part of God's will, but Jesus has authority over those things. 
Why does he allow those things to happen? We don't always know, but I am here to tell you, he has the authority, and authority sets prisoners free, captives free from sin. It sets people free from addiction. It heals marriages. It it, it makes things right because nothing's off limit from his authority. When the centurion said these things by way of a messenger, the entire crowd stopped because Jesus stopped. And it's interesting to hear what Jesus said. The Messiah said this. Look at verse 9. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found a great faith, so great a faith, even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Could we make a short list really quickly of the people that Jesus hung out with? There were the 12 disciples. They had faith in some measure because they had left everything that they had owned and come and follow Jesus. I mean, they left their fishing boats. They left their tax collecting posts. I mean, this this is what they did when they followed Jesus. There's got to be some faith there. His mother had faith. What's your faith like if an angel comes and visits you and says you're going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit and you're going to have a son, you'll name him Jesus, She had faith, and yet Jesus marvels at this man's faith. It stopped him in his tracks, and he tells the crowd, I haven't seen anything like this. It's amazing. Jesus was amazed by it. Don't forget that word. He was amazed by it. So what is it about faith that's so important? Well, for the Christian, it's the absolute linchpin. It's everything for us. Our faith is everything. When God decided to create a people for himself, He called a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he said, leave the land in which you're living. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make a nation out of you. Now, Abraham didn't have any descendants and he was old. And yet the Bible said he left where he was and he went to the land God showed him and began to dwell there. And he was trusting that God was going to do something according to his word. And sure enough, Sarah eventually conceived He was placing his faith in God. The Bible said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was put into his account as righteousness. Faith does something amazing. When we place our faith in God, our faith and trust in Christ, we're not righteous in and of ourselves, but we are given righteousness through Christ because of our faith. When we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So that happened in Abraham's life. Abraham shows what it's like to live by faith. In fact, in the Old Testament, long before Christ, you need to see God's promise to him. Verse one of chapter 12, Genesis. Go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Did you see it? All the peoples will be blessed through you. What does that mean? It's the Messiah. Abraham had to believe his long, far off descendant, Jesus Christ, would bless the whole world, and he did. Habakkuk later tells us in the Old Testament that the righteous live by faith. So it's many times I think that we we wonder if if God was doing something different in the Old Testament than he was in the New Testament. 
Well, it was different. They had the law and, and we have Christ. No, it was all pointing to a savior and they were looking forward to their salvation by faith. We're looking back to our salvation at a moment in time that Jesus came and died for us. It's the exact same. We think about our faith in Christ. We must be reminded that our salvation comes through grace. You remember that passage in Ephesians that we studied a couple of years back from Ephesians chapter two. It says you're saved by grace through faith. And this isn't of yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Notice the order because the order is very, very important. It's by grace. That's where it starts. None of us deserve it. God in his grace towards us has been merciful and he does something amazing. It means he gives us what we don't deserve. What we deserve, can we be honest? What do we deserve? We, des we deserve damnation. We deserve condemnation. That's what we've earned through our lives. And yet God in his grace towards us extended his love towards us through Christ. And so as part of what God's doing, if we think we deserve to be in God's family or deserve to be on God's team, we've missed it. No, it's by grace that God has made a way for us to know Jesus. And the Bible says our faith is a key component of salvation. Without it, we're stuck in no man's land. What that means is, is that we can know God's grace exists as an undisputed reality, but without faith to believe it, we won't be saved. Listen to what Hebrews eleven six says. Now without faith, it's impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Faith is believing what God has said and acting on that belief. That's what faith is. That's the simplest definition I can give you. I believe what God has said and now I'm going to act on it. So it's not just something that sits in my head and swirls around like knowledge. That doesn't cut it. Faith has to take me somewhere, doesn't it? A lot of people have faith and they say it like this. I met a lady one time who had a, a ring that said faith on it. And I said, what does that mean to you? Or, you know, what, what, does that, what does that ring mean? And she said, I just have to believe that everything's gonna work out. That's not faith. That, that's not the biblical definition of faith. It might be a worldly definition of faith. But when we have faith, it does something. Ephesians says it ushers in salvation into our life. God's made it available, but we have to believe. My belief in what God has done gives me the gift of salvation. And just to make sure we don't make the mistake of thinking we deserve it after we got it, God says it's not by your works, lest anybody should boast. You can't earn it. You're never gonna be good enough to get it. It's a gift. We place our faith in the work of Christ on the cross and it's everything for us. Our faith requires us to see a reality beyond what our humanity can see. I wanna just read just a few more verses out of Hebrews that I think are really instructive for us. First one of chapter 11, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what isn't seen. For by this, our ancestors were approved. They pleased God. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. When the writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is the reality of what is hoped for, he's telling us that when we place our faith in Christ, the reality of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, these things are not mythological stories. They're not fables. They're not fairy tales. 
This is a reality of something that's happened and we're placing our faith in something that maybe we can't see with our eyes or touch or taste, but it's there. We have to believe it. In fact, it's the same way that we were told to understand how the universe came to be. Did you pick up on that in verse three? The universe was created by the word of God. God spoke it into existence. Now, I'm not gonna try to, to ride a, a soapbox hobby horse here for just a second, but, but it goes without saying, we, we, we gotta deal with this for just a moment. You know, if we don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then we have a problem. Right at the beginning of God's word to us, it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No, you didn't. If he lied to us in the beginning of the word that he tells us is unchangeable, immutable, it, it, it will never fade away, it lasts for all eternity, why would we believe any of the rest of it if he lies at the beginning? You have to wrestle with this. Is he lying to us or is he telling the truth? And, and I understand what we might start to say is, we might feel like, well, but science says, listen, the Bible and science are not enemies, folks. Amen. They're not. The Bible and science are not enemies. We have to wrestle with these things. And, and that's a very different story to say we've evolved from something than it is to say that God spoke it into being, created us. If all truth is God's truth, then that just means that Sometimes our scientists haven't gotten to a full understanding of where things are. That happens all the time in science, doesn't it? There's another dimension that's opened up and we go, wow, we didn't know that. So that could be what's happening because not all scientists have this kind of, kind of negative, nefarious, what we would say, kind of a, 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 a secret agenda, but, but some do. Some don't want to believe there's a God. Some don't want to have to live with that over their lives. They, they don't want to have to wrestle with that. And you say, well, I don't know about that, Pastor. It seems like to me people in science, they're just kind of keeping it real for us. Well, you might believe that, but you'd be a little bit short-sighted because right now we're seeing scientists flip on their heads everything we've known about gender and identity for years. So are we, are we sometimes maybe beholden to, to our own biases? Aren't you? I am. Aren't we sometimes uh, maybe flawed in our understanding of those kinds of things? But the word of God says we must believe. In every aspect of our lives, believers are told to live by faith. Faith that God's going to save us. Do you believe that? Faith that God's going to provide for you. Do you believe that? You know, we've had a, uh, a real incredible season here at the church of a lot of babies being born. Shout out and plug for any of you who'd like to go work in our preschool right now. Uh, we still need a couple more baby rockers. And I'm telling you, there's going to come a day where I'm gonna preach with a baby strapped to me if y'all don't get down there and start rocking these babies. Because I love them more than I love you. Don't forget it. My retirement plan is in the preschool of this church. I'm gonna rock babies. I can't wait. Looking forward to that day. God, let me get there. You see, when you have a baby, parents, you remember that feeling? Man, this is all on me. No, it's not. It's not your kid. God gave you a gift. Whose responsibility is it to provide for that gift? Is it yours? Is it God's? 
Who's responsible for it? You you have to live by faith in that aspect, don't you? We have to live by, by faith to believe that God will take care of the obstacle that's standing in our way. Now, I think there's some things that we, we need to talk about before we finish this morning to put some limits on our understanding about this or, or maybe some clarity, I should say. I don't wanna limit our belief about faith. Some clarity to our understanding about this. Not too long ago, there was a, an excessive kind of thinking about faith called name it and claim it. If you just believe it and you claim it, God's bound to give it to you. But you can't find that in the scriptures. It's not like that, that it works that way. Uh, if you don't have faith, then God won't act on your behalf is, is what they were saying. And the danger with this, with this belief is that it kind of presupposed that whatever we wanted, God was bound to do. You don't get to tell God what to do. I don't get to tell God what to do. We don't direct the Lord of the world, the maker of heaven and earth. That doesn't work that way. Uh, I mean, did you notice how the centurion approached the Lord with humility? I, I don't want you to come here, but I know you could. Could you just say it? I'm not worthy. He, he's asking, he's petitioning, isn't he? It's different than saying, hey, I heard you're in the area. You have to come heal my servant because you got this healing power. It doesn't work that way. The idea behind name it and claim it is outside of the parameters of what faith is. The difference might begin or might be with me beginning to ask God to do something with the belief and full confidence that he has the power to do it. I, I understand that if it's in God's will and it's what he believes is best for my life, he will do it. And I can pray according to his will. And when I don't know what to pray, the scripture says the Holy Spirit prays for us and I can be confident about that, right? I mean, that's an interesting thing for us to think about. Jesus tells us if we have faith, it's like a mustard seed, it'll move mountains. But Jesus doesn't say go around like Avengers and superheroes throwing mountains around. That's not the test of faith. We're incorrect in our thinking if we believe that. Another misuse of the idea is when people say that our faith has failed us because we didn't believe. And that could be true. And we have to be discerning about this. We have to understand. Sometimes people say, well, you didn't get that because you didn't believe. Well, maybe. How can we discern that? The Holy Spirit's a good teacher. He's so good. And he, he leads us through lessons as he builds our faith to say, hey, you missed it there. You didn't believe. If you could have, if you could have just seen. One of my favorite stories about this comes from someone who's preached in this pulpit many times, Junior Hill. Junior's an evangelist. And one day he and I were talking at lunch about what it meant to pray in faith. And he said, you know, Brother Jeff, I just believe that so many of the prayers that get answered actually start in heaven and God directs us to pray them. And one morning I was going to a meeting and I was praying and, and the Lord said, Junior, pray for 20 people to be saved. And he said, Lord, I'm not, I can't pray that. That'd be prideful on my part for 20 people to be, I, I just can't do it. And he said, I just, I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. He said, I preached the meeting. We had a number of people saved. It was great. He said, later that afternoon, we were having lunch at a local restaurant with the pastor and a deacon walked up and handed the pastor a slip of paper. And the pastor opened it at lunch 
and said to Brother Junior, well, Brother Junior, I think you'd be pleased to know there were 20 people saved today in our meeting. And Junior said, I didn't have faith. It was a lesson. God did it and was gracious in spite of my lack of faith. But God had, had clearly told me that morning and I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. But you know, sometimes we pray about things and God doesn't answer them. Not long after I became a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, my family and I experienced this. My grandmother was a godly lady, loved the Lord. And one day she went in for some just routine kind of surgery that basically ended with the words, your grandmother has six weeks to live. Wow, we began praying. We began asking God to do great things. My family, certainly believers, my extended family, believers, my grandmother, my grandfather, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we asked God to do something incredible and we believed that he would and that he could and he did call her own. That felt like a blow. Well, wait just a second. You can heal people, Lord. I believed you could heal my grandmother. Why didn't you? He did heal her. He called her home. My grandmother was never worried about that. She was excited to meet the Savior. I remember as a child being in the home. And listening to her sing that song, Majesty, worship his majesty, over and over again while she was sick. She was ready, and God was ready. Was his calling her home a lack of faith? I don't believe that it was. Again, the Holy Spirit lets you know these things. He, he gives you discernment in these things, but there is something to be said about a lack of faith. Do you remember the word amazing we were talking about earlier? Jesus was amazed. Do you know there was one other time the Bible says Jesus was amazed? And it had to do with faith too. I'd like to read it for you. Mark chapter six, verse four. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. On the one hand, he's amazed at a centurion, a Gentile, who couldn't possibly know everything he needed to know. He's, he's outside of, of God's chosen people, and yet he's amazed by his faith. And then he goes to his hometown. He's hanging out with his people. He's ready to be back. It said he marveled. He was amazed that he couldn't do anything. I wonder what Jesus might say about us today. If he got to walk in the door and hang out with us, he's here. The presence of the Holy Spirit is with us. But if Jesus were just to sit up here and say, uh, Pastor, you sit down. I think I got it. And he began to do like he would do so often that he would take the scroll and open it and begin to read it and begin to teach them in their synagogues and around the temple. You get the picture. I wonder what type of amazement he would have. 
Do you think he'd look at you? Do you think he'd look at you or you? Are you up there in the balcony? Do you, do you think he would look at you and say, y'all are amazing. Your, your faith. This is, this is crazy that you guys believe me at my word. You live it out. You understand things by faith that God has given to you. You really believe in what, what cannot be seen. You have a firm grasp on it. Or do you think he would look at us and go, y'all are amazing that you don't believe anything. You don't, you don't believe in my power. You don't believe in my ability to do great things in your life. He was ready to do great things in his hometown, but nobody believed it, that he could do it. They, they just saw him as the carpenter's son. The Bible says he wasn't able to do anything. Is the arm of the Lord too short to save today? Is the arm of the Lord too weak to be able to change something in your life? Is, is the hand of God lost its power? No. But so many times what happens is it's limited by our unbelief. You ever notice how Christians talk? I tell you, there's no hope for him. Really? My son, my daughter, my marriage, it's hopeless. Really? There's no hope for America. There's no hope for the nation. We're on a jetliner headed straight to hell and nothing can stop it. Really? Is that what we believe? When we pray, let us pray with faith. Let us pray believing that God can do all things because all things are possible. Nothing will be impossible with God. Let's believe that he can change and move what we thought was immovable. Let's believe that he can make a way where there is no way. Let's believe that he will act according to his will for our best interest and pray with power in those moments and believe. And perhaps this morning, your faith needs to be exercised to trust Christ as Savior and Lord for the first time. Can I ask you this question before we close? Has there ever been a time in your life where you realized you were a sinner separated from God under his judgment with no hope except for Jesus? He's the only hope you need. And the Bible says if you'll confess your sin and confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Place your faith in Jesus. By God's grace, he came and lived a life that only he could live. It was perfect, no sin. So that he could go to the cross and die in your place and die in my place and take the sin of the world, put it on his shoulders and pay for those sins so the wrath of God would be satisfied. He's done it already. Do you believe it? If you do today, place your faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us this morning.
that you might be amazed in a good way at our faith. Father, that you might be amazed today that someone would find faith here at Judson Baptist and give their life to you. We pray for them to know you, to walk with you, to give their life to you. And Father, we pray for us as believers that as we trust you and live out your word, you would do great things. God, we believe you can do it. And I pray that our faith would rise up. Lord, there's someone here today who's facing something that none of us know about, but you do and they do. Father, give them the faith to believe they can overcome. Give them faith to pray, to serve, to work. God, somebody here needs a breakthrough. May they have faith to believe you can do it. Putting all of their faith and trust in you, Lord, for you are our hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.